Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 10.15 a.m. Central Daylight Time. I'm getting that wrong like every other day. (laughs) It's so confusing, but not as confusing as some of the stuff that I'm going to talk about. Uh, It is the 4th of August, 2020. This is episode 263 of Bitcoin and Mempool Space. Just released a new feature. If you're running, if you're going to Mempool, uh, I think it's mempool.space. Yeah, mempool.space, where you can see the blocks come across and see how many have passed and see how many are waiting to be mined. They've added a new uh, feature. It's a real-time Bitcoin fee estimate is being added directly below the blocks. It's kind of cool. Uh, go over here to it right now and see what what this thing is talking about here. Um, so I have mempool.space up in front of me right now. And I can see that, you know, some blocks have been mined and they're all like, they're all megabyte blocks. And... Then on the on the that's to my left, and then on the right hand side at the very top, it shows all the blocks that um that are needing to be mined. Right below that, they've added low priority, medium priority, and high priority suggestions for uh fee rates that you would pay. So right now, and what's what's a little off about this is low priority is sixty four satoshis a byte. <laughs> uh, that's a little high. Uh, for what I would call low priority, whereas high priority is 76 Satoshis, and then medium priority is right in the middle at 69. That's a real tight, that's pretty tight insofar as the spread between low priority, what I would include as low priority versus high priority. For me, high priority is next block. Low priority is sometime tomorrow, whereas medium priority maybe sometime in the next, you know, two or three blocks or the next hour or something like that. Um, So I think that their spread needs to go out a little bit as to what they're suggesting, because for low priority, I am not paying 64 Satoshis. I'm not going to do it. I don't need to do it. I've never done it. I'll put in like six and guess what's going to happen. It's not going to get in the next block, but it's going to get in like an hour or two from now. So just... But at least they're trying. Uh, we need better. We need better fee estimation. Uh, we need more, like hardware wallets and other wallets, uh, mobile wallets. All of these things at one point or another really do need to get uh, the their UX to include what you should be looking at in fees versus when you want that transaction to go through. I think that that would really help the space. <clears throat> now, um, I'm gonna do I'm gonna do this one. It's not directly it's it's indirectly related to Bitcoin, and it's not gonna be long. But it's like 
it's the shock value of reading this that just it I I I I found this yesterday and it was it was actually given to me by Randy McMillan. He he made sure that that I was tagged into this this retweet that he did of this Wall Street Journal article. And I don't have and will never buy a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. If they would get off their ass and give me a lightning paywall, I would read the whole article for y'all. But I'm not going to pay 60 bucks a year to read this one article. Uh, people in the media, you really need to start using the tools that you have available to you so that you don't die like the dinosaurs that you really are. I'm, I am not the only one who's not going to pay a ridiculous, ridiculous annual fee to read maybe two or three articles. Give me the option to unlock the paywall with a lightning payment, and I would have read this whole damn thing. But as such, here we go. This is the Wall Street Journal. This was, uh, I think this was written when, yeah, uh, on April the 2nd by Gabriel T. Rubin and Richard Rubin. And again, this is going to be real short. The top Democrat on the Senate's tax writing committee proposed taxing unrealized gains in investment assets every year at the same rates as other income, offering an idea that would transform how the U.S. taxes the wealthiest people. The proposal from Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon is the latest plan from Democratic lawmakers and presidential candidates for boosting taxes on the wealthy to address economic inequality and provide funding for their policy agenda. And then that it just kind of dies. If you, if you don't have a subscription to wall street journal, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so two things, how am I sure it's going to be just on the wealthiest people? How, and, and at what point, do would I be considered one of the people that can't even own a house because every year that my house appreciates, I get taxed on it, even though I'm living in the house, whether I paid for it, whether the house is 100% paid for or still on mortgage because I got principal invested in the house with a mortgage. Would I get taxed every single year? for a house that I'm not going to sell because I, I don't know, have to fucking live in it. Plus, I mean, and the, the, the thread, when I uh, retweeted that back out from Randy, thank you, Randy. I appreciate you uh, turning me on to that one. It got a you know, a few, a, a fair few amount of traffic of people going, well, shit, what happens if I get, what, what's my unrealized earnings potential? I mean, would, would they be able to calculate what I should be getting in 10 years? And if, and, and, and that's unrealized, and if, you know, some of these are a stretch, but it's none of these are, you know, none of them are as much stretchy as trying to tell me that you're going to tax me on what I should have made had I sold a property. I'm, I'm so done with these people. I can't, I just... That's why I'm, what I'm saying is that when I rail against the United States government, I'm not railing against America. I love America. I love Americans and I love the land. But these people are doing everything in their power to screw it all up. And it doesn't matter if you're red team. It doesn't matter if you're blue team, green team, or some in-between team. It does not matter. You put somebody in Washington, D.C., 
And within days, they will turn into a monster trying to figure out a way to extract as much wealth from you as they can, whether to enrich themselves, enrich their buddies, or because they really believe, you know, in taxes and and their policy agenda needs that, that money to do stupid stuff. You know, it doesn't matter if that's it. It could also be that they want to keep us poor. I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't matter what the intent is. It's what the effect is. And they're effectively screwing all of us. And this shit is just going to get worse and worse and worse. And somebody who did have a subscription to the full article noticed that somewhere down in the, in the bottom, they said this news article stated that this bill probably has no chance of getting passed. But if the Democrats are elected into, you know, and sweep the House, the Senate, and the presidency, that this may be our, this may very well be our reality in the future. And I'm not saying go vote Republican so that the Democrats don't do it. That's a red team, blue team bullshit. Right? The whole thing needs to be completely burned to the fucking ground and then rebuilt. None of these people have any business telling any of us what to do. So be aware that that bullshit narrative is out there. Now, going to another, a different congressman, somebody who I actually like, Tom uh, Emmer. Liam Frost is writing this for Decrypt.co sometime this morning. Bitcoin ain't going away. It's going to get stronger, says U.S. congressman. Ah, Yeah, you know he's talking about Tom Emmer. The decentralized nature of Bitcoin is what makes it stand out compared to traditional tightly controlled fiat currencies, U.S. Congressman Tom Emmer said yesterday during the POMP podcast. Hosted by Morgan Creek Digital co-founder Anthony Pompliano, Emmer pointed out that Bitcoin was conceived by Satoshi Nakamoto around the same time the 2008 financial crisis struck the world, not unlike today's economic woes spurred by the coronavirus pandemic. And like in the past, people are looking for new stores of value amid the United States government's unprecedented relief measures that could ultimately devalue the United States dollar. Quote, as we come out of the crisis, Bitcoin ain't going away. It's going to get stronger. And now... Acting comptroller of the currency, Brian Brooks, is saying, hey, institutions, you can start banking this stuff. You can provide a home for it. You can start working with it, end quote, said Emmer. He was referring to Brooks' recent statement that banks in the U.S. are allowed to custody cryptocurrencies, a move widely supported by the crypto industry, you think? As Decrypt reported, the congressman also defended Bitcoin in the wake of a recent Twitter hack, stating that Bitcoin isn't the problem centralized control is, end quote. During the podcast, Emmer confirmed his stance, quote, look, Twitter's the problem. They're the ones that screwed up. Bitcoin didn't screw up. Twitter, your security was not adequate. They hacked Twitter and you're going to have bad guys all over the place, end quote, said Emmer. He also explained that this is why he doesn't like centralized control. As an example, Emmer recalled when the coronavirus started spreading in Chinese Wuhan, and the local government just shut everybody down since it was in control of fiat currencies. Quote, the government has your currency all on a card. And guess what? If you lived in Wuhan, they shut you down, man. You couldn't even get a ride out of Wuhan to another city. You couldn't go get some groceries unless the government released you to go get the groceries. So need I say more about what I don't like about centralized control? End quote, asked Emmer. God, I like this guy even better already. Emmer 
added that when Facebook's Libra cryptocurrency was first proposed, he thought, oh, great concept, wonderful, but someone's got to be in control, right? End quote. Citing The Road to Serfdom, a book written by an Austrian-British economist and philosopher Friedrich Hayek, Emmer pointed out that in a centralized system, there always has to be someone or some group that decides the allocation of money, and that is never a good thing. Quote, now that works out pretty good if you're one of the ones that's in the group or is the guy. But after a while, if you're not in the group, if you're not the one making the decisions on the allocation, this thing only ends one way, and it has never been good, no matter where it's been tried, said Emmer. Quote, I don't want to see the government screw up, and that's the crypto area. He added, pointing out that Bitcoin's decentralization is what could make it the next phase of contemporary monetary systems. Quote, I think we're just moving into that, that next phase, which is why crypto, the area, excites me. Because do I think that the government has a role? Yeah, I'm not going to say no. I don't think it has a big role. I think people can police themselves. Emmer noted, adding, I don't like the fact that my colleagues think everybody is so dumb, they're all going to get fleeced all of the time. You know, the greatest game is through the greatest risk, end quote. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have a whole hell of a lot to, you know, to add to that. And I certainly don't have very many criticisms, except that I don't think the government should be in control of any money whatsoever. The, the government should beg us. <laughs> should beg us for money. That's what they should be doing, which clearly wouldn't work because they got all they they have the guns. But you do remember this, people. There's like 400 million firearms in the United States, and they're not all owned by the military. Most of the and I'm talking about the ones that are retail sales. I'm not talking about the military issue shit. The one that that is contracted by the Marine Corps to give their Marines when they go through basic, those aren't included in those numbers. The tanks aren't included in those numbers. The GAO-8 machine gun that they load into the front end of an A-10 Warthog is not included in those numbers. Those are our firearms. And at one point or another, these guys are going to push too hard. And I I honestly, I don't want to see that shit happen, but they just keep going. It's like your children and they just, they go and they, they start being shitty to you and they just, you know, like, it's like a, a, a clash of wills. And at one point, the parent freaking snaps. And at one point or another, I think the American people, if they keep getting pushed like this with bullshit, like getting taxed on unrealized gains, if that shit comes down the pipe, the people that don't fight will leave. They'll just bail, man. They'll just say, you know what? Come find me. You got bigger fish to fry. You know, try to come. I have enough, like, let's say median income for years and years and years. You got decent amount of savings. You can go live like a king down in Costa Rica. And I mean, are they really going to waste their time to send Navy SEALs inland into Costa Rica to come extract your ass? You know, and if it's just a simple matter of them calling the the Costa Rican government and having you on, you know, having them on the phone and saying, hey, go get this guy and go give him, you know, go get or give him back to us. You know, what what if you just pay the the government of Costa Rica to say, you know what, we don't know where he is. Everybody's lost in a gigantic boating accident, I guess, is what I'm kind of getting at, because the creativity of the human mind when under pressure, don't don't discount that. When everything is good and solid, people are pretty predictable. 
And yeah, you can go, you know, if one guy, everything's fine around the world and one guy jets and says, I, I don't even want to deal with giving up my citizenship. Yeah, you're probably going to get hosed. But in a mass, uh, in a mass situation, you know, where there's just all this unrest and weirdness going on. And then you got people that are putting the pressure on you and you're sent in your home government, like the possibility of unrealized gains being taxed. You're going to lose tax base. And the people that don't want to leave are way more likely to fight because nothing is equal right now. So just, again, the narratives are weird. Everything's weird. And this is when people break. All right. So more weirdness coming off the other side of the world. William Suberg is writing this one for Cointelegraph sometime this morning that the Bitcoin price hit a new all-time high against the Turkish lira. <laughs> you think? A famous Bitcoin skeptic has called for a gold-backed currency to save Turkey as its national fiat currency collapses. Yeah, too late, but you're not going to be able to install that. In a tweet on Monday, Johns Hopkins professor Steve Hankey argued that hard money was now the only way out for Turkey, which has spent billions of dollars propping up the lira. At press time, those efforts were still in vain as another day of intense selling sent the lira to a record low against various currencies, including the euro and Bitcoin. Weakness in the United States dollar meant that the lira-dollar pair avoided a record of its own, nonetheless dropping to its lowest level since May. Uh, Turkey's situation is reminiscent of that which engulfed Russia in 2014 as the Ukraine crisis sparked a rout that saw the central bank continually selling foreign exchange reserves to steady the ruble. Quote, they're intervening quite heavily. And the question is, how long can they do that? A strategist at Deutsche Bank, Rabobank, told the Financial Times last week, Ankara has taken a laissez-faire approach to Bitcoin regulation with a lack of formal recognition, ironically contrasting the moves such as banning PayPal in 2016. Hanky, or Hank, is well known for preferring other safe haven assets to BTC, which he described in June as not a currency. He joins the likes of Peter Schiff in his support for gold, which itself is at $1,975, an all-time high in U.S. dollar terms. Interventionist strategies on the part of governments and central banks when it comes to currency forms, a major argument in favor of Bitcoin as an alternative. As Saifedean Amis notes in his now ubiquitous book, The Bitcoin Standard, the foreign exchange leverage that Turkey is now using only came about because governments removed gold backing of their respective currencies. In a timely post this week, Amis highlighted a 1957 essay written by Ludwig von Mises as an essential weapon against bowing to what he called the inflationist nonsense of fiat. Quote, Nothing is more important today than to enlighten public opinion about the basic differences between general liberalism, which advocates the free market economy, and the various interventionist parties, which are advocating government interference, Mises concluded. So yeah, Turkey's going down the hole. We knew that shit was going to happen, but honestly, I, I, you know, how you install gold-backed currency at this date with this much, you know, rife and strife going on in the uh, Turkish streets, I don't know. I don't know how you'd even go about that. I, I, honestly, I don't think you can. I think it's too late. And I think anybody that's in Turkey that had any kind of sensibilities, you know, about them at all during this time was already day, uh, daily cost averaging and stacking sats just because it's like, well, shit, they got nothing else. 
They got nothing else. All they got is the same shit that we're going to get here in the United States with people who want to tax you for unrealized gains. Keep that in mind. Ripple co-founder is selling 1.74 million Ripple per day, according to Crypto Monitor Whale Alert. Daily Hodel staff writing this one for the Daily Hodel sometime this morning. Jeb McCaleb's back. Ripple co-founder Jeb McCaleb is now selling an average of 1.7 million XRP per day, according to the crypto tracker Whale Alert. The daily total, which is a 266% increase from 200 or 2019, is worth about 547 bucks at the time of writing, according to CoinMarketCap. McCaleb served as Ripple's chief technical officer before leaving in 2013 and launching the open source uh, money platform Stellar the following year. While he still holds a large personal trove of XRP, he can only sell limited amounts during the terms of a legal settlement with Ripple. Whale Alert estimates uh, McCaleb has sold around 630 million XRP in 2020 and still holds about 4 billion. Oh God, the scammers. Ripple reached an agreement with the Stellar founder in 2014 that restricted him to selling a portion of his XRP each week. The company later accused McCaleb of violating that agreement, and in February 2016, Monica Long, Ripple's senior vice president of marketing, announced an updated settlement between the two parties, which McCaleb touted as a victory. Since the agreement, Ripple routinely transfers XRP from a settlement wallet to McCaleb's wallet each month. McCaleb's address can be tracked here, 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 and here, and all those here's are his wallet address links. So, McCaleb. Dude, you scammed, you scammed. All you people at Ripple are, you know, are scamming. And all the people that bought Ripple that are defending Ripple, how do you defend it? How do you defend this shit? He's got $4 billion. He's making millions of dollars a day off of your backs. It's, it's disgusting. And it's even more disgusting when you yell at me because I'm trying to tell you that XRP is a scam. It's clear it's a scam, yet I get bitched at when I, whenever I say it. And I'm like, if you're holding a bag of XRP, you should be twice as pissed as me. At least twice as pissed. Deceived crypto investors, speaking of, launched their own scam to recoup losses. Stephen O'Neill writing this one for Cointelegraph sometime yesterday. Investors in China launched a crypto scam after being deceived themselves and got busted by the police. Chinese police have reportedly arrested a group of scammers who launched a faux crypto scheme to recoup their, recoup their losses after being defrauded by a number of different crypto-related cons themselves. <coughs> XRP. According to an article from the Public Network Security Supervision Bureau posted on WeChat earlier today, an investor named Yang created a fake investment scheme after losing around 100 won which is about $14,000 to a crypto MLM project. That means mid-level marketing. After teaming up with two other investors who had similarly been deceived by crypto scammers, Yang launched a fake mobile app and a token called ByChain. Their operation reportedly massed more than 20 members in Lian, Yan, Gang, Yangchang, Huan, and other regions. <coughs> After deceived investors from Langanganging reported by chain to local police, the authorities traced down and raided the company's office. Why did you have an office? They arrested Yang and his companions, who reportedly made over $43,000 in profits by that time. As reported by Cointelegraph, crypto Chinese or Chinese crypto scams have intensified against the backdrop 
backdrop of CBDC pilot tests being carried out in local uh, cities. Fraudsters are now impersonating CBD, CBDC test groups, promising high returns on initial investments, which generally start at around 1430 bucks. Earlier this year, the People's Bank of China clarified that there is still no timetable on the formal digital yuan launch. So, God, you know, it's just, it's never going to end. I, I know we, we make fun of alt season and we, you know, call all these things scams because they are. I'm, we're not wrong. They're, they are definitely scams, but they're not going to go away. And we can cross our fingers and wish it away and, and burn shit down and provide hardcore evidence that cannot be refuted. And it's not going to matter because you're not fighting with the facts. You're fighting against humanity. And there's some really deep seated problems with the human being. And then you put them in a group and it's like a force multiplier. People can be very dangerous because people can be very, very stupid. Be careful out there, folks. Be careful. Where FATF or FATF crypto compliance gets interesting. Africa, August the 3rd, written by Ian Allison for Coindesk. It says, Africa isn't included on the virtual asset regulatory map just yet, but crypto businesses seeing strong growth across the 54-country continent are working hard on know-your-customer rules to meet the exacting standards set out by the Financial Action Task Force. A broad range broad range of entities operating in Africa, ranging from crypto exchanges to remittance providers to peer-to-peer marketplaces are exploring KYC options, which could mean picking up licenses from other jurisdictions or even creating new regulatory frameworks in some cases. The FATF makes reference to jurisdictions with weak or non-existence anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist financing controls in its recent published summer plenary report if a so-called stablecoin provider were located in a jurisdiction with poor aml ctf controls other jurisdictions could apply their stronger aml ctf laws to these providers say the fatf report but enforcement of any rules might be difficult if the home supervisor of the virtual asset services provider has not implemented the revised fatf standards strongly enough to respond to international cooperation requests The report continues, nonetheless, innovative crypto players in Africa and other parts of the unregulated world are doing their best to be AML compliant, be good little slaves is what they mean, with a view toward meeting the requirement to the travel rule. The travel rule mandates that the senders and receivers of crypto transactions over $1,000 on regulated exchanges must be identified. That's why I don't use exchanges. Quote, in places where there aren't really e-regulatory rules yet, firms are doing KYC and using blockchain analytics for AML, said former Kenya resident Pele Bradengard, CEO of crypto identity startup Anatabeen. People are shopping around for regulation, looking at remittance licenses to deal with foreign partners so they can have at least some level of clarity, he said. This was the approach taken by BitPesa, launched in Kenya in 2013. The cryptocurrency payments and liquidity platform, which rebranded as AZA last year, snagged a license from the UK's Financial Conduct Authority in 2015, then acquired money transfer company Transfer Zero in 2018, gaining a license from the Spanish Central Bank. When AZA 
expanded into Nigeria. That's the AZA thing. It helped the Nigerian Central Bank address the dearth of crypto regulation, taking part in a government DLT task force, said Stephanie Zhu, AZA's head of marketing. Quote, our AML and KYC are of UK and European standards, which means we are asking for things that nobody else on the African continent is asking for, said Zhu, adding, quote, we have a number of automated AML KYC platforms that are integrated into ours. But when you don't have the same kind of access to government databases, it becomes much harder to run these checks. So unfortunately, we do have to use a combination of automated and manual systems. In quote, AZA also recently recently became the first company to get digital remittance licenses in Uganda, which involved some hands-on effort. The control, the command and control that is going on with uh, the travel rule people, FATF, it's it, it's it's just sick. All this, all they are doing is fitting you with collar and chain. That's all that's going on here. They're not protecting children. They don't give a shit about terrorism. Can I prove it? No. And you know what? I'm not going to waste my time because if you really think that these people are in it to keep you safe, then you are somebody I don't need to be talking to. Honestly, th- nothing here is is right. Nothing is right. I mean, it's like, it's like the matrix. It's like that, that needle that's in, in the back of your mind and it's just twisting around and you know something's wrong. You know something's wrong and you just can't put your finger on it. I can. Unelected financial officials making rules that are enforceable by the governments that appointed them. That's what's wrong. Everything falls out from there. That's the beginning point of all of these problems. And what's funny about it is that this shit has not been going on for too long. And I, I, I'm clearly decades, a couple of centuries, but in the whole history of, of humanity, and as humans learned how to use technology to transfer value between each other, this is a very new thing. I think we're at the end of it. I think it's going to be very, very painful to get to the other side of it, but I think it's over. I do think a new renaissance is on the horizon. I do think anybody that's listening to to this podcast right now is going to be alive to see it. And I was telling my sister yesterday, I have never been more excited to be alive right now so that I can see this shit, so that I can finally see these people get get what's coming to them. It's going to happen. It hasn't happened in my lifetime, so why am I, you know, why am I optimistic for the future? The pressure valve is about to break. It's always been about to break. I know, I get it. And I know I'm I'm about to say it this time it's different. It feels different. I can feel the anger just everywhere. People are angry at shit they don't even know what they're angry about. I know what they're angry about. Something's wrong. It's they're tired of that needle in the back of their mind and they're tired of not knowing what's wrong and they're going to go find out. God help these people when they find out. Let's look at some numbers. Major indices are... Meh, you guessed it. Yep, S&P 500 is up a, a fifth of a point. NASDAQ is literally has changed 
0.05% to the downside. Uh, the, the Dow Jones is up half a point. The FTSE's down an eighth of a point. It's, this just is sick, man. Nikkei is up almost two points. The Hang Seng is definitely up two points. And the rest is, you know, it's just, it's, this is all sideways. This is just all sideways stuff. All the bond yields are down except for the 10-year bond, which is as worthless as it gets considering it costs you a little bit over half a percent to hold it, okay? Everything else, though, has fallen in yields. Oil is up almost a buck and a half, or not a buck and a half. Oil is up 50 cents, which is a 1.5% change to the upside. It's last on West Texas Intermediate's $41.59, and... Natural gas having a rally, and I don't know why. It's up 3% and is now $2.1 per uh, MCF. Gold rallying as well, uh, 1.3% to the upside. It is over 2000 standing at $2,013.50. Silver has had an even bigger rally. It damn near 5%. It's chilling out at $25.50. And let's, but, you know, this is Bitcoin and I am obligated to talk about, whoa, little glitch there. Sorry about that, guys. I I got a little, a little weird there and hit the, hit the stop button for some God, God only knows, but I am obligated to talk about real money. This is Bitcoin and Bitcoin is at $11,203. I got a high. It's going to be over at BitAsset, $11,228. And my low is going to be at Coinbase Pro at $11,182. transactions were made in the last 24 hours. That's about 14,500 transactions on average per hour. We have sent 1.04 million BTC around the horn in the last 24 hours with an average being sent per hour of 43,603 BTC, an average transaction value of three BTC with a median transaction value of 0.047 BTC. That's about 530 bucks. Block times are way low, eight minutes and 56 seconds. We've been taking 0.7 BTC on fees on a per block basis and uh, 114.7 114.7 BTC have been taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. A whopping 15% added to hash rate. Holy smokes. Bringing us to 136.195 exahashes per second. And the last time somebody committed something to the Bitcoin GitHub repository was this morning. Ethereum at 389. Bcash at 288. BSV at 227, Litecoin at 57 and three quarters, Ethereum Classic at seven bucks, and Dogecoin holding the bump 0.0034 with 47,800 transactions in the last 24 hours. It's it's kind of showing Ethereum Classic, Litecoin, and clearly Bcash the door. Bcash with a pissant sub 20,000 transactions in the last 24 hours. It's just sad to watch. Roger Ver. Okay. Uh, Bitcoin.clarkmoody.com forward slash dashboard. Let's talk about the mempool. Uh, Clark Moody is looking at a mempool that says 23,692 transactions are pending. That's about 35 blocks that need to clear that mempool. 
uh, he is showing a price of 11202 Okay. for That's a price for Bitcoin, in case you didn't know. Uh, Lightning Network stuff. 968.89 BTC are in the Lightning Network in total. That gives us about $11 million U.S. in liquidity. That's spread across 7,312 7, nodes, representing 36,500 channels. Tor capacity holding at 44.8%. And that means that there's about 434 and a quarter BTC in the Tor side of the Lightning Network. And that is over 2,133 nodes that we can see. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to round two of the morning roundup. Zcash Foundation Executive Director Josh Cincinnati resigns. Josh Cincinnati, what a hell of a name, man. That's like mobster level naming right there, man. Steve Anderson is writing this one for thecoinrepublic.com on August the 3rd. Josh Cincinnati, or a.k.a. Kneecapper McGinty, the executive director for Zcash Foundation, has finally decided to bid adieu to the company. Cincinnati has been instrumental in turning the foundation into a transparent organization. He held a critical position in articulating and executing Zcash's 2 of 2 multisig governance structure during his tenure as the executive director of Cincinnati. Uh, Cincinnati, he was pivotal in guiding the organization to new heights and often been the guiding voice for many in the foundation. Announcing the resignation over a tweet, Cincinnati stated that it was very difficult for him to make such a bold step, but at the same time, he felt that the timing couldn't have been any better. Zcash Foundation, being a builder of financial privacy infrastructure, felt sorry for his departure and eventually welcomed new people on board. Cincinnati now feels that it is time he hand over the reins to the foundation to find new leadership. It is quite known the need for private digital cash is growing exponentially. Owing to its mission, the technical efforts made by foundation are this, it's, this may be a uh, either poorly written. No, this guy's the author is from Australia, so this is just poorly written. This is, sorry, guys. Let me try, try that one again. Owing to its mission, the technical efforts made by Foundation are worth praising, making it successful. That's the actual sentence. It's just saying. The Foundation is excited to start a new chapter and grateful for the works done by Josh. Cincinnati feels that the Foundation's technical efforts will make a big splash this year. He predicts that the Zebra will be a dominant node on the Zcash network by the end of 2021. Cincinnati also thanked his colleagues for their invaluable support and said that Zcash should continue to place their faith in their projects, institutions, the problem here is that these people all have names and they have addresses and they have equivalents to social security numbers no matter where you are honestly at some by at some you know in some country if you were born somewhere someone stamped you with a number I won't get into number of the beast or anything like that because come on it's bad enough as it is without having to bring the devil into this shit this is what's probably like uh, Matt O'Dell uh, from Rabbit Hole Recap tweeted. I saw a tweet today. He said, you know, if you were a state, how would you screw over Ethereum? And I just answered Vitalik. That's all that needs to happen. 
If you weren't around when it was rumored that Vitalik died in a car wreck, you should have seen the the absolute wreckage that happened to the Ethereum price when that the day that news was released. He had to release a picture of himself holding up a piece of paper with the correct block number on it at that time so that people knew that he wasn't dead. Of course, Photoshop brings all that shit into question. I think it was a real picture. I'm it's clear that the Vitalik is still alive. But I'm saying Vitalik. I mean, it's like in, pick your shit chain. It's the same all the way around. There's people that you can nail to the wall and everybody's hopes and dreams are attached to that person. And once they get nailed to a cross, they're going to sell their shit. In the case of Bitcoin, I said, well, you could come after the developers. Yeah, find all of them. Good luck. Go to every country on the face of the planet. You know, find every anon that's actually been, you know, contributing code. You might be able to go after Greg Maxwell. Greg Maxwell has an address somewhere. He can probably be found. Is he the only developer? No, there's hundreds of them. But the problem here is cult of personality. That's what's going on because Satoshi Nakamoto decided to bail. There is, there can be no real cult of personality. Yeah, we can talk about how modern art sucks because of fiat and how we should all be carnivores and all, all, all that. People call it cultish, but I'm like, the, 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 I mean, I'm not a carnivore. I love meat. I eat it all the time. I also like couscous. Not, not a carnivore. I'd be pointed at and laughed at by that particular subculture. But Vitalik is a cult of personality. And so is Craig Wright. And so is Roger Ver. And so are all these people that have the ability to be thrown into chains. This is why I Bitcoin. The 2020 rainy season is tougher than ever for China's Bitcoin miners. This was written August the 4th for Coindesk by Wolfie Zhao. <laughs> Wolfie, love it. Rain has come. Machines are humming. This should be the best time of the year for China's Bitcoin miners. The monsoon season generally from June to October brings excessive rain and thus cheap hydroelectricity. But this year is different. Proving to be harder than ever for China's Bitcoin miners and mining farm operators who are estimated to dominate 65% of the global multi-billion dollar mining industry. Since last summer, many mining farm operations rushed to build new facilities in China's southwestern region in anticipation of a dramatic price rise with Bitcoin's halving. But mining difficulty has now almost doubled compared to the monsoon season last year. Okay, let's, let's stop that right there. Mining difficult has almost doubled compared to monsoon last year. Okay, so that's about one year ago. The hash rate I just read to you was 136 exahashes per second. All right. So what are we talking about? Like a little under 70, you know, a little under 70 exahashes per second was what was last, the, that was the hash rate last year when these new facilities were being designed and built and numbers run upon. And here we are at almost 140 exahashes per second. This mining is a difficult prospect and new models are going to be coming online all the time. I talked to you about that electrical grid uh, balancing model, uh, business model yesterday from layer one official, that's at layer one official. The human, human ingenuity 
is going, that's when, when somebody says, see, these guys aren't going to be able to survive. Bitcoin is dead because you'll blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You don't know who's waiting in the wings. Like people like layer one official going shit. I got to work around and they do. Let's continue. While block rewards have halved, meaning it is more difficult to mine with less rewards. Bitcoin miners that have entered the market since last year have to wait much longer to see a return on their investment in mining hardware and facilities. Thomas Heller, a global business director of Mining Pool F2 Pool, summarized the situation in a recent blog post where halfway through 2020 in the mining industry has already faced several enormous challenges. Miners had to battle off the macroeconomic black swan of March, pass through the smoke of the halving in a pandemic, and now they're gearing up for the rest of the year's competitive battlefield. Many miners expected Bitcoin's price to rise sharply after the halving. That was a dumb thing to do. You should just look at the other have prior halvings, said Kevin Pan, CEO and co-founder of the China-based Poolin, one of the two biggest Bitcoin mining pools in the world, along with F2 Pool. In reality, not only was there not much price momentum driven by halving, there came the mega sell-off on March the 12th, which caused a large scale of forced liquidations and losses, he said. For two months after having Bitcoin's price largely remained static at around $9,000, although it jumped above 10 grand last week and is now changing hands at over $11,000. It is still at a similar price level seen at this time last year. In contrast, the network's mining difficulty rose to an all-time level within two months after the halving. It's now almost twice as difficult to mine Bitcoin compared to last July where while block rewards were halved. Without a significant price breakout, Bitcoin miners' daily revenue has dropped by 70% compared to last year, said Pan, although the recent Bitcoin price jump has helped improve the situation. Or improve the situation. Indeed, BitInfo Charts data shows Bitcoin's daily mining revenue was around 33 cents per one terahashes a second of computing power in July 2019, and has since then declined to now around one penny per terahash per second. <clears throat> Meanwhile, a surge in interest and investment in Bitcoin mining since last year has led to a surplus of newly constructed mining facilities in China. In April, the oversupply issue had already shifted the hosting business from a seller's market to a buyer's market, with mining farms generally offering a 20% electricity discount compared to last year. Pan estimates that during the rainy season, 20 to 30% of mining facility capacity in Sichuan and Yunnan provinces still remain unused. To be clear, Bitcoin miners and mining farms can still make a profit, but they have to endure a much longer period than expected to break even on their investments. A payback period of six months to a year used to be common for the Bitcoin miners in China, but if Bitcoin maintains its current prices at around 11,000, that could be extended for as long as two years. Quote, in the eyes of many old Chinese miners, old, <laughs> 11 years, <laughs> old, the electricity price right now is not only lower than the similar situation of the halving in hydro season in 2016, but also even lower than the electricity prices during the 2015 bear market, said Heller of F2 Pool. Lower electricity may be appealing to miners, but it also means mining farm operators are facing an unprecedented investment challenge as the business shifted to a buyer's market, Heller said. 
So despite this year's tough market environment, some are still bullish over the long term and are rolling out products to in attract investors. Zhang Zhuers, CEO and founder of Mining Pool BTC Top, who also runs his own mining farms, recently launched joint mining contracts dubbed B.Top. It essentially sells mining equipment by terahash per second and farm electricity at cost to retailers who want to participate in mining. The company will not charge customers hosting and management fees until the mining profits they receive break even on their investment. Hash Age and Hang Jia, two long-running Bitcoin mining farm operators with over a dozen facilities in Sichuan, also announced a partnership with Chinese crypto lending startup Babel last Friday. Flex Yang, CEO and co-founder of Babel, said the firm is allocating up to $50 million in USDT as a loan for those who chose to host their miners at HashAge and Hangjia's facilities in contrast to previous crypto loans that require borrowers to pledge Bitcoin as collateral, this new partnership accepts debtors' miners hosted at HashAge and Hangjia as collateral. Ooh. This effort is also one of the industry's first in terms of treating specialized mining equipment known as ASIC miners as a tradable asset in crypto-based debt financing Luxor a U.S.-based mining pool rolled out a Bitcoin hash rate price index earlier this month in an effort to provide better transparency into the traditionally opaque market of how much Bitcoin mining equipment is changing hands, but rain cuts both ways for the mining industry. Flooding in China is among the worst in decades and has affected over 50 million residents with nearly 4 million people displaced and over 150 dead or missing. The good news is it could have been much worse. Pan said the flood has so far mainly affected the middle and lower reaches of the Yangtze River. Since most mining farms in Sichuan and Yunnan are located along the upper reaches in the mountain area, which are some 120 kilometers or 800 miles away from the middle reaches, there are fewer instances where facilities are directly flooded due to the rainfall. But Pan said there have been more regular instances of mining farms, hydropower plants temporarily cutting off electricity generation because the increasing water reserve levels would otherwise cause pressure on the dam. And I guess they're talking about the Three Gorges, which is having some serious issues. The places that are suffering the most severe damage so far are provinces in central China, including, I can't pronounce any of these, as illustrated in this multimedia article from the South China Morning Post, and it's just a giant map. <clears throat> Johnson Zhu, chief analyst at Beijing-based research startup TokenSite, said mining farm operators nowadays are more experienced in choosing the right location for construction after witnessing events in previous years where facilities were destroyed by floods and mudslides. Quote, Chinese mining farms have already conducted thorough due diligence to pick the locations where potential flooding risk is minimal so the floods haven't caused a major impact on the mining community, said Zhu. Another reason... Why there are too many Bitcoin mining farms is the push by local governments in Sichuan for establishing the so-called demonstration zone for utilizing excessive hydropower electricity since late last year. Mining farms and hydropower plants that chose to be based in these industrial parks can typically enjoy a stable operational environment with a steady and cheap power supply. In return... They give a portion of their profits to local governments, as well as China's state grid, the state-owned utility monopoly. In previous years, many mining farms in Sichuan and Yunnan have been using what's called direct supply electricity. 
That means power plants sell electricity directly to mining farm operators without having to share the profits with other parties. As local governments have stepped up its efforts to rectify the direct supply model adopted by many power plants, this has created a sort of tug of war among local governments, hydropower plants, as well as state grid, Pan said. Some Bitcoin mining farm operators using direct supply electricity wish to sell their facilities at a low valuation. Given tough market conditions, this tug of war will continue to be a risk factor for potential investors in those mining farms. Overall, the latest regulatory policies in China tend to have a negative impact on those unregulated smaller mining farms, but positive towards firms who meet the local regulatory requirements. What do I have to say about all that? I honestly think that uh, Bitcoin mining is going to start finding uh, greater distribution outside of China. That, that's what I think ultimately is going to start happening. Um, I really want to see it start happening in, in North America. And I'm really infatuated with the use of stranded energy, you know, natural gas and, and the like. And I'm also really fascinated with layer one officials business model of using um, Bitcoin mining, they call it, they say it's a bat, they're calling it a battery. It's not. And I really wish that they would have chosen any other word. It's a sink is what it is. So you can just overproduce and have like whatever your facilities that you have online for your overproduction, you can go ahead and spin those up. Okay. So overproduction, like overproduction, if it's a really hot day, and everybody turns on their uh, air conditioners in Texas. The Texas grid goes, so they got to kick on these extra generation plants to balance the grid. Layer one, at least the suggestion in my mind, was that you go ahead and burn it. You go ahead and spin, spin those generation plants up, keep them on. We will soak the power into, it's a power soak uh, is also another term that you can use. Uh, we'll soak up the power in Bitcoin mining and then we will release that electricity by shutting down miners and then that will help regulate the load balancing on the grid. I love that idea. It's not a battery though. Stop using that term. It's a power soak. I, I think power soak is the best terminology to use for that. But in either event with people like that developing these kind of business models, going and finding stranded energy out in the middle of freaking nowhere and using Bitcoin mining to balance, uh, you know, load balance grids is going to pull uh, mining away from China. And this kind of shit over here that we just read about, it's, a, you know, this is not a pretty picture for China, Chinese miners. And everybody, you know, I'm sure that there's people out there going, oh, deaths, mining death spiral incoming. No. It's not. It's why we have the difficulty adjustment. That's a key critical part of the infrastructure of Bitcoin. And it's so dumb simple. It's, re it's stupid simple. You wait two weeks, the network reevaluates itself and says, I don't need this much hash power. Blocks are coming in at like eight minutes. We don't need that shit. And, the, the, or, wait, see, and then the difficulty skyrockets. And two weeks later, it reassesses the, the situation and says, 11-minute blocks kind of suck, so it'll drop. That's what regulates and guards against any kind of mining death spiral. So please, guys, stop it. Russia declares cryptocurrency legal. 
but prohibits its use for payments, says a report. Daily Hodel staff writing this one for the Daily Hodel sometime yesterday. Russia is all about the Russians. Russia is reportedly declaring cryptocurrency legal after President Vladimir Putin signed a bill recognizing cryptocurrencies as a type of property that cannot be used for payments. <laughs> According to Russian public records, bill number 419059-7 was initially submitted to the State Duma, the lower house of the Federal Assembly of Russia in March 2018. After more than two years in the review stages, the bill made its way to Putin last month, reports the state-owned Russian media outlet RT. Quote, the Council Federation of the Federal Assembly of the Russian Federation decides, one, to approve the federal law on digital financial assets, digital currency, and amendments to certain legislative acts of the Russian Federation. And two, this resolution comes into force from the date of its acceptance. Note that word force. According to Russian news outlet RIA, legislatures define cryptocurrencies as a means of savings and investment, but not as a means of payment. In addition, individuals and entities should report their crypto holdings for tax purposes. The bill also says Russian banks and crypto exchanges will have the capacity to legally sell, purchase, and facilitate the exchange of digital assets after registering with the Central Bank of the Russian Federation. Anatoly Aksakov, head of the Duma Committee on the Financial Market, says concepts related to the business of cryptocurrencies such as tokens and mining will be addressed in a separate bill, which may be passed before the end of the year. So watch out for that separate bill, 100% conflicting with the prior bill. This shit happens, man. So I don't, I don't know, man. To me, it's just, this is kind of like a waste of time. Why make it legal if you can't use it? And by the way, people are going to use it anyway. You know why? Because people around the world are getting tired of your bullshit. And for the last one today, Ethereum gas usage, speaking of bullshit, reaches all-time high. Congestion intensifies. Zoran Spurkovsky, writing this one for coin or cryptobriefing.com sometime yesterday. Ethereum has been putting its foot on the pedal over the last two months, generating new record-breaking usage numbers that paint apparent demand for the platform. Can the network keep up? God, who cares? Ethereum enthusiasts will be quick to attribute this achievement to DeFi protocols like Uniswap Compound and YEARN and the imminent launch of ETH 2.0 testnet. They are undoubtedly part of higher activity numbers, but they are not the principal reason behind ETH's network congestion. Much of the responsibility lies with Ponzi schemes, Forsage, MMM, and Lion's Share. Based on the total number of transactions and standard gas limit for contracts, these scam smart contracts were responsible for 5,600 ETH in gas fees over the last month, or about 10% of total consumption. To put this in perspective, in terms of network usage, this would put these three Ponzi schemes on par with Tether which conducts tens of millions of transactions and moves billions of dollars over Ethereum. Since mid-July, Ethereum has facilitated at least 1 million transactions every day at the cost of 21 billion gas. Excluding simple transactions, 57 billion is used exclusively for smart contracts. Ponzi schemes comprise about 17 billion of this consumption, almost 30% of smart contract activity. As a result of these scams, gas prices are inflated, floating between 35 and 90 guay, or G-W-E-I, whatever that's 
pronounced in real terms. This is already showing an average in average transaction prices. A typical Ethereum transaction currently costs about two bucks. Highs not seen since the middle of 2018, though fast climbing ETH prices are partially responsible. Nonetheless, Ethereum is working on in implementing a scaling solution, ETH 2.blow, to help address the load associated with growing adoption of the network. Growing adoption by Ponzi schemes, you mean, because that's what this entire thing is saying. Your high fees on Ethereum is directly caused by Ponzi schemes. And uh, it's not like a small percentage of Ponzi schemes. Just get that through your head. The entire network of Ethereum was a fraud that enabled fraud. Okay. And there's nothing you can do about that. And again, what can bring this down? One word, Vitalik. Uh, Mr. Buterin, we'd like to have a word with you is all it's going to take. And by the way, it seems also, it also seems fairly clear that Ethereum has already been co-opted by state entities because they're doing things that only a state would love. Uh, everything that they do is just, uh, and what I've never understood is the Rube Goldberg me uh, mechanism of ether or Ethereum gas and GUI and Ethereum. I like Bitcoin's easy to understand. And that's why I trust it more than something that is so convoluted that when you admit that you're like, I don't, I don't get this. This doesn't make sense to me. And somebody points at you and says, that's because you're too dumb to understand. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. This thing has been purposely designed to be this freaking confusing. And I think they, I think it's done, you know, I think the reason that it was done was to somehow or another give itself a plausible deniability because nobody can really figure out why the hell all this shit works this way. It, and it doesn't need to. This, again, this is why I Bitcoin. That's going to do it for the morning roundup. Daily train wreck brought to you by Joe Weisenthal, or also known as at the stalwart on Twitter. Joe opens his mouth and says the following. When Bitcoin is over, over, it will be very fun picking through the horrendous economic arguments that were made to justify it. That was from a long time ago, by the way, when it's really over. You know, that's what he's, he's just begging for it to be over. He called it a long time ago to be over. And now he's, he's back again because it, when it's really over, when it's, you know, when Bitcoin is over, over. And this tweet was made 10th of April, 2013. Yeah, there's your smoldering pile. Terrible Joke Corner brought to you by Dad Says Jokes. I'm always frank with my sexual partners. I don't want them to know my real name.
I have this friend when we were going out a lot and we were in college, you know, we were hitting bars and he had this nasty habit every once in a while of, you know, bringing somebody home, which is honestly, guys, it's really not all it's cracked up to be because it, and it's not because this guy who was pretty successful at that one night we went out and we were going to a, amazingly enough, Peter Frampton was playing a club in Lubbock, Texas, and we went to go see it. And he decided to wear the ugliest shorts that he had. I'm talking, these things were like hideous, dude. Lime green with a darker lime green, like checkered pattern on it. And they were like, came up to just above his knees, like they were swimming trunks or something. Fair enough. It was summer, but he purposely wore them because he's like, I don't want, I, I, I don't want to bring anybody home. You, you've got to stop me from doing this shit. And I'm like, sure, man, I got your back. I'll be your anti wingman. And uh, next thing I know, I went to go to the bar. I got two beers. I come back. He's talking to this chick. I'm like, we've been here 15 minutes, dude. And so I walked up. I gave him his beer. And uh, right as I gave him his beer, he's mid-sentence. He's like, oh, my name is Steve. And it was just the way he said it. Because the man's name is not Steve. (laughs) I know where dad on dad says jokes is coming from, from this one, from personal, personal confirmed experience. I think it's possible. He actually went home with somebody that night too. I don't know. Anyway, there's your terrible joke. Um, we're over an hour by four minutes. So I'm going to go ahead and cut this off. There's nothing more to say other than be careful. Evil people are all around you and they're doing everything they can to scam you out of your money and apparently scam you out of money that you haven't made yet. It's just in, it's just insane. It's absolutely insane. That said, I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.